0: Hi there, everybody. Welcome back to the New Discourses podcast. I'm James Lindsay. We are eyeballs deep in our series or mini-series within a broader series of critical education theory. We are eyeballs deep in Paulo Freire's uh, work, and in particular right now his book, uh, The Politics of Education from 1985. And just to remind everybody, The Politics of Education is not his most famous book. That's The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which came out in 1970. This 1985 book, The Politics of Education, is the book that broke him into the North American education scene that cemented his work at the center of all of North American education, colleges of education in particular, where he is the third most cited source in the humanities and social sciences overall. Very influential. And I'm trying to make the broader point that uh, basically all of our kids go to Paulo Freire schools, so it's very important for us to understand what this man's work has done in terms of creating a revolution in education cannot be overstated, and it's a catastrophe. Um, in the previous episode uh, of the podcast, we went through the first half of chapter six of the politics of education. The previous episode was chapter five. The previous one before that was three and four. Before that was one and two. Before that was two podcasts in a row, splitting in half the introduction to this book by Paulo Freire's evangelist, Henry Giroux, who brought his work to North America uh, in large part. And so in the previous episode, it's too unwieldy now to kind of unpack all of what Paulo Freire is about and what this book is about at the beginning of every podcast. We're going to spend 45 minutes talking about all the previous episodes, and this is only going to expand. So I'm not going to do that here. I'm going to just link right off and say we just talked about the first half of chapter 6. In the first half of chapter 6, um, Paulo Freire explained what I describe as the mar- his Marxification of education. He doesn't call it that, of course. But what I'm saying is that Paulo Freire Marxified, if you will. He made Marxist education itself. This is much bigger than putting Marxism into education to indoctrinate with. You must understand what I mean by the Marxification of education. And what I mean is that he turned the concept of education into a Marxist theory. The idea of being educated becomes a special kind of property or being literate or having knowledge, where the knowledge isn't real. The education is formal education. It's not real. Literacy isn't real. It's being able to read and write and participate in the existing society, as Herbert Marcuse might phrase it, but not learning to overthrow or have a revolution or be critically conscious and thus critical, aka Marxist, against the existing society. Okay, so what he did was he turned the idea of being literate itself into a bourgeoisie, educated is a bourgeoisie and it's fake. What we consider education, what we consider literacy, what we consider um, having knowledge, being knowledgeable, being an expert, what Freire is saying is in fact, that itself is in fact just a reproduction of the existing system. And when we look at what's going on with the the um, expert class of the world today, we of course see that they have turned this into their program. This is their program, is to have a technocracy Uh, But what he's saying is that if you become educated in the system, you're only learning to participate in it. You're not learning to see it for the oppressive thing that it is, as Marxists would see it, and that the education process itself has to be Marxified. And so uh, picking up out of the first half of chapter six, which is technically about the adult literacy process as cultural action for freedom, which then generates out of adult literacy into all of education, uh, is what we're what we're doing here. And in the first half of the chapter, which we covered in the previous episode of the podcast in this series, um, two podcasts ago on the channel, we see that Freire set up the Marxification, as I call it, of education by making literacy, being educated, knowledge itself into bourgeois property, then recreating Marxist theory in that domain, So, bringing praxis into education. So, if you understand praxis, it means putting the Marxist theory into practice in order to transform something, and what he has transformed is the point of education, what it means to be educated by Marxifying education. And so, he started off by playing the usual, just to summarize briefly, the usual Marxist trick, everything is as it is, is already governed by some theory of some kind, this, he went on to describe includes a theory of man or an ontology of man, which is him reproducing Marx's ontology of man, his theory of what means to be human, what it means to not be an animal. And so since we, and we'll come back to that by the end of this, we, it's very important that this is really what this is all about. And so what he says is, since we have oppression, the anti-oppression conscious Marxist theory is the obviously right point. So what he's saying is there's always a theory whether it's an education or about mankind or whatever and they're actually those are actually linked that's why he can bring in the marxist ontology underneath it as a philosophy but there's always a theory no matter how you teach there's always a theory in play there's always a theory happening so why use a theory that's not self-reflective and that's not marxist when you could have a marxist one and so now we have to use a marxist theory of education is what he's saying he's marxifying education which is why I titled that episode of the podcast the marxification of education And it's a deep change. It's not merely sticking Marxist ideology into education. It's making education itself a Marxist program, which is a very different, deeper thing. And this is really where his stature comes from in the field, where these Marxists have embedded it into all of the colleges of education. And so the trick that that he's playing off is everything is already ideological which by definition exists to maintain oppression. So Marxism as the unique anti-ideology, as Marx had it, becomes the superior choice or uh, of a direction to take. And so his education theory, his new view of literacy, where being literate means being critically conscious, which means being a Marxist, instead of being literate in the existing society so you can succeed in the existing society, which reproduces and perpetuates the existing society. Uh, His program in education, which makes you a Marxist, is the only legitimate one because every other approach reinforces the ideology of education, which is that people should be educated to be successful in the existing society. So why can't your kids read? Why can't they do math at grade level? Why can't? Why is there 30% of the students in this country, in the United States, are they operating at grade level in basic skills like reading, writing, mathematics, historical literacy, etc.? And it's because Freire's program is to actually stop teaching the skills that allow you to succeed in the existing system, which would reproduce it, and instead to teach Marxist consciousness, which would challenge it. So it's to teach your kids to complain. And we'll hear that literally in this part of the, the the chapter to complain instead of to have practicable skills. So he sets up the usual dichotomy. Everything is already ideology. So we should use the right ideology. Let's use the Marxist ideology, which is technically anti-ideology according to Marx. So it's the only right way. There's always a theory. So let's use the right theory, which is Marxist theory. There's always a theory of man underneath. We're always shaping man according to how we we think about what we're doing in the world or maybe don't think about what we're doing in the world. So let's take the conscious direction to guide society toward its possible utopian end. And when I say utopian end here, I'm not riffing. We're going to cover that too. He's very explicit that that's the agenda when we go through this the rest of this chapter. Uh and as we get into the next chapter, chapter seven, which is another—it's the long seven—is the longest chapter in the book, and it's a r- real deep and complicated mess. So then, like I said, Freire goes from this basic uh, trolls truism, as I call it in the previous, where his basic um, kind of stupid view that everything's already theory, so we need to use Marxist theory because everything else is the wrong theory. Everything's already ideological, so we're going to use Marxist ideology, and he creates a straw man of education by saying that what you're doing whether it's through a banking model where the people are like bank like the students are bank accounts and the this the teachers are depositing information into them that which they can then capitalize upon if they want so reproducing marx's theory of capital but in the terms of being educated by having knowledge and ideas and skills that are relevant to the existing society deposited into you. And then he also gives this nutritionist account that people are starving. It's the illiterate as the empty man. And so you have to fill him in like a bank account or by feeding him, by nourishing him with food and drink. So he creates this straw man of education is filling empty vessels with knowledge, meaning by knowledge that which the existing system values and considers knowledge, not other ways of knowing, not all their other knowledges, not lived experience, of the lived realities of oppression, which would be generative in Ferreri's terms. No. What the existing society considers knowledge, which, as the Foucault, as Foucault, for example, Michel Foucault, the postmodernist tells us, as the postmodernists tell us, is just another functionary of power. People who have the power to to be experts get to decide what is and isn't knowledge. We see that kind of being attempted in reality right now, and we see what a farce it is. Um and they exclude other ways of knowing and other knowledges uh, as it were. And so other ways of knowing and the people who use them are marginalized. So he says, we want to shift from the view of the illiterate as the empty man to the illiterate as the marginal man. And then says that you can't see marginal as excluded from the system of society, but rather integral to it. And in the previous podcast, which was on, on this book, um, which was long and deep, you know, we compared against George Lukacs's ideas, uh, and how he's recreating the Marxist George Lukacs from Hungary who helped lead the Hungarian revolution for their short-lived Soviet Hungarian empire or Republic. I mean, um, in the 19 and 1919 for four months, uh, he's reproducing his theory that you can read, for example, in history and class consciousness, which came out in 1923 after that, uh, revolution failed and was pushed back. Um, uh, So now Freire, he's taking those same ideas and making education. He's Marxifying education. That was the point of the previous podcast. So he uses the, to do that, he uses the idea that um, people who are illiterate or uneducated are marginal within a conflicting whole. So the the fact of the matter is that that whole society as a whole is marginalizing them in an active sense. It is excluding them from full participation by rendering them illiterate, by, meaning, by thinking that things like literacy matter, where literacy is defined in a narrow, narrow way that upholds bourgeois interests. Okay. And so what he says is that the marginal man has to be understood as part of a conflicting whole, class antagonism for Marx, in which only they can see the totality but they can only see it if they're conscious, which means educated properly. And then they can occupy, they can be moved, centered, as it were, moved to the center where they can see the totality. And this riffs off of um, George Lukacs's exact same ideas about what class consciousness and thus critical consciousness are really about. And so this is where we left off with Freire's Marxification of Education. Now we pick up with the back half of Chapter 6, where Freire lays out kind of the praxis For this theory. So remember that a Marxist theory always contains a theoretical element and a practical element. A theoretical idea to riff off of Hegel from which all this springs, and unless we go to Rousseau before him, there's a theoretical idea and a practical idea, and that the absolute idea for Hegel arises when the theoretical idea and the practical idea are dialectically synthesized back into a single unity, a synthetic unity, as a matter of fact which he would call a concrete unity. Uh, so you can't have a theory without its practice. And the practice of, just like I said a minute ago, of a Marxist theory is called praxis. And so what we're actually hearing now is the praxis for this theory. And what we're going to discover, and I think this is not putting too fine a point on it, and this is what the title of the this episode is going to be, is Paulo Ferreri and the Birth of the Groomer School. Of Groomer School. So what we're going to see, in fact, is what Ferreri is outlining is not just a Marxification of education, but he's using that to create the grooming process as the center of education. So what we see are three sections in this uh, back half of the chapter, the adult literacy process as an act of knowing, then dialogue as, as methodology, and then sowers of the word, which is a little bit weird, but we're going to get deep when we get to it, by which learners will come to proclaim the world. Remember that Freire's kind of maxim is learn to speak the word so that you can proclaim the world. In other words, so you can transform reality rather than living in it. So education or literacy is no longer about learning to live in existing reality, it's learning to Transform it into some new thing. And what you're going to see is that his model, and we talked about it some, we've talked about it some already, we'll talk about it some more as we go on. And it gets very significant later in the book is that he's talking about people learning to denounce the existing world and announce the new world in perpetual revolution as the point of education. Not being able to read in the existing society, not being able to do mathematics, but to denounce the existing world. And then announce the new one. And so, just to kind of point this out, uh, a lot of the older sorts of Marxists, Trotskyites, for example, tend to see Freire's view of dialogue as method, which we just heard that's the second section dialogue is method, uh, as methodology, um, as a perversion of Marxism. But I would argue that it's an advancement of Marxism. Uh, and you know, th- there's a metaphor here in terms of what's gone on with Marxism to neo-Marxism or critical Marxism into even identity Marxism. And people say, well, this isn't Marxism because it's not focused on economic conditions. Marx was against idealism of all sorts and was a total materialist. And this is very, you know, kind of into the idealistic. As a matter of fact, if you read critical race Theory introduction, though, it's very clear. They say that they're, <laughs> that they're synthesizing the idealist and the materialist positions. So what they're actually doing is shifting into the cultural domain or the geist domain, if we remember our Hegel. Hegel said that the basic uh, trinity of society was that the idea is at the top, that's like God, and it gives birth to a a, uh, state, which is the divine idea as it exists on earth. That's a direct quote from Hegel. And then that gives rise to a society or a culture or a spirit, a geist of that society. And then the contradictions within the existing society manifest within the Geist, and then they cause a revolution into a new idea, a new idea paradigm, and that new idea paradigm then gives rise to a new state, and a new society, wash, rinse, repeat, to the end of history. That's the kind of theology of Hegel in a nutshell. And it's like spiraling through history to a higher and higher plane, uh, lifted up by the German term that literally means lift up, Aufheben. Uh, which means to cancel or abolish, but also to keep and also to lift up to a higher level. Okay, so uh, what we have here then with the neo-Marxists is that they have moved into this kind of geist category. And so I tell people, you know, people say, well, this isn't Marxist because blah, blah, blah. And that's like saying that Protestantism isn't Christian because it's not Catholicism after the Reformation. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's just a completely different framing of how we're going to approach it, which is that we're going to go directly to the scripture to understand it and not rest in papal authority or in the history of the church. And so it's actually just a different approach to Christianity, but it's <laughs> Protestant Christianity is still Christian and as much as protestants and catholics want to fight about whether or not the other is really christian they're obviously both christian and so same thing's happened with marxism it went through a reformation that we call critical theory or critical marxism or neo-marxism and now it's gone on to a deeper or a further evolution into identity marxism and this is really freire sitting right at kind of the the juncture of those last two but he's deep within the what we would call you could call it reformed marxism if you wanted to Riff off of those things. Um, But it's obviously still Marxism. So it's an advancement of Marxism in that regard because it brings the Marxist theory into education itself, which is a cultural domain. And in fact, it's a domain of cultural production and reproduction. They're not wrong about that part, they're just wrong about what it means. And so it brings Marxism, like I said, the Marxification of education into education itself, both in terms of what it means to be educated and in terms of how education is meant to be accomplished. Both theory and practice, pedagogy and uh, the practice of teaching. So teachers, to kind of summarize, have students as objects. <laughs> Objectification is the big enemy because the human to humanize something is for the thing to see its the, the person to see himself as a subject acting in the world with agency. And then that what separates man from animals is that conscious ability to, to, we'll hear this explicitly later in this chapter, to see, or maybe it's in the next chapter, to see this and to build something in the world out of their imagination and then to see themselves in their creation, which is exactly what uh, Hegel was laying out with the idea of God. God creates the world so that he has an abject other, that he can come to know himself better. For Marx though, there is no God. Man is God. And so man is creating things in the world in which he sees himself and thus knows himself to be creator. Mm. Okay, so teachers in the real education model have students, and those students, according to the Marxist, Marxification of education are objects, okay? So they're being objectified, they're being alienated from everything, their education process, their ideas, their own thoughts about the world, which would be generative concepts, which he talks about all the time, being alienated from that, thus their ability to know themselves and to know the world that they're actually in, etc. And they're being turned into uh, replicators of the existing society. So as students as objects m- are molded according to the teachers, ideal- as the Marxists or Freire would have it, ideologically captured view of the world. So the students are now producing the subjectivity of the teachers, which is itself the subjectivity of their teachers on back to, throughout the entire system. They're not actually producing their own subjectivity in the world, thus they're alienated, etc. So what they're doing is reproducing the existing society, somebody else's subjective view of the world for somebody else's benefit, and uh, what the teachers are doing is they're making students functional in the existing system, which stabilizes them in the existing system, which makes them not want to overthrow the existing system. So all of this adds up to the Real education, actual education, which I would be accused of being ideologically blind and thinking that having fallen for the ideology that being educated can be something other than a social formation uh, controlled by the people who want you to believe what it means to be educated and that I've just fallen into this trap. It's a complete um, unfalsifiable view. But anyway, the view is that Real education maintains and repeats the existing society, thus perpetuating its oppression and its dehumanization and its alienation and its estrangement from one's own knowledge, one's own world experience or lived experience, etc., which is a form of oppression, blah, blah, blah. So this is believed by Freire to be alienating all around on every level. Learning, uh, You're learning as as a student in this domain, alienated ideas. He talks constantly about syllables and stupid sentences in the literacy process that, that that don't resonate with people so you're alienated from the you're learning alienated ideas ideas that don't connect to you that estranges you from your own process of learning because now you know you can think of the student raising his hand and saying why do we have to learn this they feel alienated and estranged from the ideas that they're learning uh it uh, reproduces the alienating system that will alienate them in the work world and alienate Uh, themselves from each other. It alienates teachers from students by creating a power dynamic where the teachers know and the students learn. That's the so-called banking model. It alienates students from each other who are now studying, often very individualistically, not working in in collaborative groups, etc., but also they're competing for Uh, high grades and so on. So they're now competitors one another alienating from one another rather than seeing themselves as cooperative wholes in a process of learning. And that's really what Freire is about is this cooperative process of learning where students and teachers get reformed into educators and learners who are all equal working together. So he argues that educators and learners and dialogue are a different situation. They are in fact both subjects in the process of learning. And so we're still technically summarizing the previous episode, by the way. Educators learn about the context of the student learners and direct it toward consciousness. Learners learn the vocabulary to speak and thus transform their world, which is their object. And through learning about it, they become conscious of themselves. By changing it, they become conscious of what makes them human, which is that they're creators. So he recreates a Marxist theology explicitly in the domain of education. That's actually what... Freire's whole project is. Okay, and to kind of summarize this, this is how this next, next section begins. To be an act of knowing, the adult literacy process demands among teachers and students a relationship of authentic dialogue. True dialogue unites subjects together in the cognition of a knowable object, which mediates between them. If learning to read and write is to constitute an act of knowing, The learners must assume from the beginning the role of creative subjects. That's the beginning of the section, the adult literacy process as an act of knowing. So the literacy process, becoming literate, doesn't count as an act of knowing unless it's rooted in authentic dialogue, which means Marxist dialogue, and That's going to unite subjects together in the cognition of a knowable object, some external other that's going to be very important, which is the world that they live in and the way that uh, society treats them. And this mediates between them and therefore facilitates the learning process. And like I said, he's so explicit about it. If learning to read and write is to constitute an act of knowing, the learners must assume from the beginning the role of creative subjects. That's, That's the arrogance of Marxism right there all the way. it then goes on, it's not a matter of memorizing and repeating given syllables. So everything I just said is getting reiterated. Now, summarizing the previous uh, section, sections of the previous podcast, which is the first half of this chapter, it's not a matter of memorizing and repeating given syllables, words, and phrases, but rather of reflecting critically on the process of reading and writing itself and on the profound significance of language. This is the way that he thinks. I, messed up the intonation there, so I apologize, and on the profound significance of language. So you can also feel the postmodernism creeping in at this point, the power of language, knowledge as a social construct. These are key, those are two of the key six things we outlined in cynical theories as being indicative of postmodern thought, and we weren't incorrect about that. So he's saying that education, to be an act of knowing, can't be about learning to memorize and repeat, which is a caricature of actually learning to read. But no, we should instead be reflecting critically on the process of reading and learning itself. So let's not learn to read or write. Let's reflect on what it's like to learn to read and write. Let's indulge in more lived experience. Let's indulge in more feelings. Let's not do anything practical, but indulge emotional nonsense all the time. And then say that, wow, language is super important to this. Because then, language you can why because you can manipulate language and you can speak the world into existence this is why they're they're all wizards they think they're wizards read stuff from Klaus Schwab or listen to the stuff they put on on videos on Twitter they think they're wizards they think they can just tell us to eat bugs and we're gonna think yeah hey, bugs are great they think they're wizards and they act like they think they're wizards like they know they think they're wizards and that's why they care so much about language, because they think they're casting magic spells. They can just reflexively put ideas into the world and we'll repeat them until they become true. That's reflexivity. George Soros was big into that. His book, The Alchemy of Finance in 92, was all about that, as a matter of fact. And he called it alchemy. He literally called it alchemy, The Alchemy of Finance. And he said that it's not about getting the true and false statements about the world. It's about operational success. And he says that in the book. And he compares that to the scientific method, which is actually about knowing things in the world. Okay. No, they want to play in language and they want to play word games constantly because that's where all their power is, is in manipulating language. We re- think of Joseph Pieper's 1971 essay, Abuse of Language, Abuse of Power, which was analyzing the way that Marxists do exactly this. We can think about um, the uh, Eric Vogelin's uh, second reality that they construct by misusing words. And then Freyrie continues, Insofar as language is impossible without thought, and language and thought are impossible without the world to which they refer, the human word is more than mere vocabulary. It is word and action. It's a magic spell. They're wizards. You're a wizard, Harry! The cognitive dimensions of the literacy process must include the relationships of men with their world. So now, to make it wizardry, because it's word and action, you have to be talking about relationships between man and the world he lives in. These relationships are the source of the dialectic between the products men achieve in transforming the world and the conditioning these products, in turn, exercise on men. I don't know how many more times I have to tell people what the theology of Marxism boils down to before people will stop saying that I'm wrong about it but how much more clear can it be? It's about the dialectic, which is rooted in the relationships between men. And that dialectic is between the products men achieve in transforming the world, so they're a subject that creates a vision of the world, and they transform the world. Maybe it's building a chair, maybe it's starting a social movement to transform the world, and the conditioning these products in turn exercise on men. This is the dictum of the Marxist theology. This is the circular logic. Man makes society, makes man, makes society, makes man, makes society, makes man, makes society, and the whole goal of Marxism is we alone, as the Gnostics, the scientific Gnostics who have the true scientific study of history, as Marx called it, the dialectical materialism, which is now the dialectical structuralism in this later neo-Marxist form, we who have the Wissenschaftlicher Sozialismus, the scientific socialism, can seize the means of production of what? Of society and man. Through the man-makes-society-makes-man-makes-society-makes-man process. So education, by giving the power of naming, which you will recall was bestowed upon Adam by God in Genesis, through learning is the way this so-called truth is revealed to the learner. In other words, he is the creator. By learning to speak the word and proclaim the world, he can transform the world through language, through rhetoric, through appeals to pathos, emotion, lived experience, his experience of oppression. So giving the power of naming oppression, making oppression visible, as we hear constantly in theories like critical race theory, feminism, and so on, through learning as the Marxist Freire has it, is the way that the dialectical nature, man creates man, uh, society, creates man, creates society, creates man, creates society. Creates man, creates society. That's the way that this gets revealed to that learner, as opposed to the student who is merely taught to reproduce a slightly new variant on what already is. In other words, to create, if we go kind of to John Baudrillard's postmodern philosophy, a further simulacrum of reality, further removed from any original that might ever have ever been, that might ever have been, I should say, say the Garden of Eden, and then that in turn deranges itself further and further in its own logic, which is the thesis of the Dialectic of Enlightenment by Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno uh, in the 40s. Okay, So the point of education for Freire is to reveal all of this to learners, not to reproduce the existing society, to learn that if they learn what they're supposed to learn, That they're only supposed to learn it because the existing society will make use of them for learning it, and the proof is that they'll get jobs and be productive in the existing society, but then they're going to reproduce it. And then they need to understand, in fact, that by becoming a learner instead of a student who's learning to critically see reality and understand how man makes society and society makes man in a cyclical way. Uh, process and that the conscious have a role to play in having Gnostic information, Gnostic insight nobody else has, and then can direct the course of that through history to a desired teleological end like a communist utopia, which again, we're going to come to him talking about utopia here uh, by the end of the chapter. If we can do that, that's the point of education, not to learn to reproduce it. So not to learn to read, not to learn to do math, not to learn to write. That's all, whatever. If you get to it, fine. Not to learn history, but to learn a history that reveals the a, a version, a historiography that reveals this. That's the 1619 project. So, indeed, one of the things that it tries to teach, because it's an entitlement theory as well, is that it is their birthright to live in the Garden of Eden, where their naming of things is, uh, you know, what makes the world. You proclaim, you speak the word to proclaim the world that you live in. And that they have been, not only is that their birthright, but they've been unjustly excluded, unjustly excluded from their birthright in a perfect society that caters to them. And it's they've been excluded so that privilege, whether that's God wanting to stay as the gods without man being raised to his level in Genesis 3, 2 and 3, I guess, or whether that is um, the bourgeoisie in society trying to maintain their power over the exploited masses. The point is that they are being excluded from their full expression of humanity and their freedom and their liberation and their birthright as creators in a perfect world that caters to their entitlement so that the privileged, whoever that is, can stay privileged by the system that they created and maintained to serve themselves through the exploitation of the masses. This is Marxism. Freire says, learning to read and write ought to be an opportunity for men to know what speaking the word really means. And I just keep drawing you back to how biblical this is. A human act implying reflection and action. Reflection and action means praxis. That means Marxism. As such, it is a primordial human right and not a privilege of a few. So reading and writing, in the sense that Marxists like Freire mean it, which means being critically conscious is a primordial human right. Now this is really important, okay? So I'm just going to read through it and like take it all in. As such, it is a primordial human right and not the privilege of a few. Speaking the word is not a true act if it is not at the same time associated with the right of self-expression and world expression, of creating and recreating of deciding and choosing and ultimately participating in society's historical process. In the culture of silence, the masses are mute. That is, they are prohibited from creatively taking part in the transformations of society and therefore prohibited from being. Even if they can occasionally read and write because they were taught in humanitarian but not humanist literary campaigns, They are nevertheless alienated from the power responsible for for their silence. Okay, so this is like very important. Freire, like Marx and Lukács before him, indicates here a belief that short of a revolution, only the superstructural actors, only the bourgeoisie, can participate in society's historical process because it requires access to the special form of property that allows you to do that. But those people have rigged the system for their own benefit to sustain that benefit. And because Marxists see creating as their birthright, because man creates society, creates man, creates society, etc., this exclusion, quote, prohibits them from being. We've heard this before. This is why the woke identity Marxists are so obsessed with inclusion or erasure or even going so histrionic as saying having their very being denied, which is extremely pathological in the sense of pathos. Okay, so this is why they say trans erasure makes it so they end up committing suicide is because it erases their very being. This is why we, we they say things like white silence is violence. The silence, the culture of silence that keeps the oppressive system in place and is denying the very right to exist, they say. And the reason they say something histrionic and nonsensical, like you're denying my right to exist, is because what it means to exist for a Marxist is to be able to see yourself as the creator who speaks the world as you imagine it and have that come to fruition. So if they don't get their way, they believe they're being denied the right to exist. They're what makes them human instead of animal is being denied to them. And it's being not just denied to them, it's being denied to them by people who get to do that. This is the vulnerable narcissism, okay? The vulnerable narcissism or the covert narcissism is like the introverted side of narcissism where we're used to grandiose narcissism, which is the extroverted side to make it really simple. And so it's where you think you have some really awesome, special talent that's better than everybody else, but nobody re- will recognize it. Nobody's giving you attention. And it's because people value other stupid things. And if they were at real, you know, if they really cared, they would, they would value your thing. Here's an example. There's a recently a meme where somebody was complaining. It's like a cartoon and it's like, Woke cartoon. And so it's like, oh, that bodybuilder, he's so stupid. All he has is muscles, but I read and do poetry and make art and do really interesting things. And this is vulnerable narcissism. He thinks that he has something more valuable and he's pissed off that chicks think that the bodybuilder's hot when he could be out lifting weights. But of course, no, he won't because he wants to be, he's entitled. He's a vulnerable narcissist. He thinks he should be getting the attention that he's not getting by virtue merely of being. And thus, the stupid projects like his poetry and art that he's into, he thinks that only people who are truly refined and have a true view of what society should be about, that only those people actually would care about him and value him. And everybody else is stupid and worthless, but they get the attention because the entire system's cooked up against him. That's an example. Herbert Marcuse is that character. Read his critiques of culture. <laughs> Pop culture is terrible and garbage and there. You should have these higher level understandings and appreciations of culture, blah, 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 and yada, yada, yada. And it's the same thing. It's vulnerable narcissism. And you know, If people would just appreciate me for my stupid hobbies and think I'm cool for them, they, if they really knew what it was about, how great my poetry is. So that's a you know pretty solid example. Insults are another example. They think that they're just entitled to have people be attracted to them and have sex with them. And they get really pissed off when people aren't because they're not doing something to actually make themselves attractive. And so their very being is being denied and they get really pissed off and dangerous. Um, I had another example and I forgot what it was when I was talking about the the, the weightlifters. Uh, and it, was, it was a funny one. So maybe I'll think of it again. But what you see is this vulnerable narcissism tapping deep into uh, this kind of pathos driven mindset. Marx is, of course, an example. All he's doing is writing crap about capital to the point where one of the major women in his life, I don't remember if his mother, his, his wife, or his mother-in-law had said, you know, Carl spends so much time writing about capital, maybe he should stop and earn some. Uh, that would be awfully nice, wouldn't it? Uh, but he just felt like he was entitled. People should be paying his way. People should be giving him money and donations, et cetera, because he, he's writing something that's absolutely genius. And if people actually realize the value of how great his work is, they would want to pay for him and just support him. He's not producing value for anybody. And that's what it was. The the funny thing, the critique of race Marxism that was written by a fellow Matt McManus in Jacobin Magazine recently gives this example. He says, I've got everything all wrong. Listen to the vulnerable narcissism from the poor guy. What does he say? He gives some example of a piece of literature. I don't remember what it is. And it's apparently a great work of art and very few people pay any attention to it. Only, you know, super elite people who deserve lots of cool attention like himself recognize its true artistic value. And he compares it against something like twilight or 50 shades of gray. One of these kind of like not very well written, but very popular, sort of trashy, stupid novels, series of novels that made $500 million or some cool billion dollars or whatever. And he's like, well, that just shows that the market doesn't even, it was his point. The market doesn't know real art. It produces, it it values trash as opposed to valuing the true art. They can't even see it. Oh, you poor vulnerable narcissist. You poor you! You see yourself in the piece of art that is underappreciated, that has got true artistic merit, even though it doesn't produce value for very many people. Whereas Fifty Shades of Grey tapped right into a bunch of uh, thirsty um, thirsty moms and sold five hundred thousand copies or five hundred million dollars worth of copies because and became a big film franchise because and in fact a toys franchise. Because it was creating value for people. It was tapping into something they wanted and that value, they hate this. Marxists hate this. He's writing about capital instead of earning it. They hate it because they're entitled, because they're vulnerable narcissists. Okay. So we've heard this before, right? That their very being is denied to them by not getting their own way and being valued for who they are. I had a conversation with a kind of sloppily dressed young woman recently. And she's wearing like sweatpants and looks like a mess and doesn't comb her hair. Used to dress kind of cute and all this. And um, you know we're fairly close. So I'm like, why are you like this? Why don't you? There's other like, there's other people that I know, lots of people who are your age, are being very successful, but they dress the part and they step up and they're they're bringing you know whatever. And the reply was, well, if they they don't like. if they don't like me dressed like this, they don't like the real me. Okay. Vulnerable narcissism. Roger. You want attention for free. You want support for free. You want to just be valued for existing. Sorry, sister. Everybody that's alive exists. That's, that's, that's ground zero. got to work from there. And you're not entitled to anything. And if your life sucks, this is why Jordan Peterson's like, clean your room. And he's correct. Okay, so back to Freire, without my sidebar here into vulnerable narcissism. What Freire is driving at is that the reason literacy and education, etc. are geared as humanitarian. But in being humanitarian, the humanitarians are just trying to reproduce the existing system, whether blindly thinking it's just the way it is and it's good, Or intentionally, and you might think of like missionary schools that are trying to bring Christianity, for example, somewhere. And so they're trying to produce a system somewhere or reproduce a system somewhere else. And so for the Marxists, this humanitarian, this is Freire's point, he says, even if they can occasionally read and write because they were, quote, taught in humanitarian but not humanist literacy campaigns, they are nevertheless alienated from the power responsible for their silence. What, what he's saying there is that there's a power, the hegemonic uh, structural power of society that's maintained by the bourgeoisie to their own benefit that's excluding and marginalizing them unjustly, and they are not connected to or able to criticize or even see that power if they are taught to read and write and participate within it, even whether they fail and can't get a job or whether they succeed and can. They're just still part of that system, and they're alienated from the power. They don't have the power which is requires a critical perspective to be able to transform it into something else. And this human, human humanitarian approach, he says, is wrong. We shouldn't be trying to help people succeed in the existing society. We should be humanist instead. And that's Marxism. Marxism called his program humanist. And if they were humanist instead... They would be inviting the oppressed into the one human thing that differentiates man from animals, which is being conscious subjects in the acts of transforming their world, which thus allows them to recognize themselves as creators or creative subjects, as another way to put that. So Ari, rather like John the Apostle, this occurs through the word. But now instead of in, say, the Gospel of John, we don't have word as logos understanding, comprehending the order and structure of the world, we have word as pathos, lived experience, emotionally expressed, Phenomenal. if we want to get into Hegel, phenomenologically expressed. It turns out I can say that word. So what we have is this huge shift, right? And he's saying it is a primordial human right, not a privilege. Now, I just read through that other, the introduction of that other paper about critical race theory in second grade literacy programs in 2006. And if you recall, and I said, and there, what you saw, first of all, is that he's talking about the culture of silence within literacy. if, And then they also said that the way that literacy is, con- literacy campaigns are constructed and education is constructed in the second grade literacy, the way it's constructed is that white kids have education as a right and people, children of color, have it as a privilege extended to them. Okay. And so this is where you see this recreation. So Marxists are, are saying that the bourgeoisie create an education system where being educated is a right for people like themselves but it's a privilege for everybody else which they're then saying that means it's just a privilege for a few it's not actually a right for everybody and they're inverting the ideas of rights and privileges uh, because that's not actually what is going on and like i said just like marx just like lukacs short of a revolution This proceeds from the belief that only the people in the bourgeoisie, the superstructural actors, participate in society's historical process. In other words, the process of changing it. Only they have access to the power. And so this is all about how do you gain access to that power, which they say is at the center of everything, which the margin doesn't have. So the margin has to be brought into the center. Illiterates, he says, no, they are concrete men. That means people with actual lived experience which makes them knowers. These are key specialized terms in Marxist education theory. They know that they do things. What they do not know in the culture of silence in which they're ambiguous dual beings, just like critical race theory says that they have dual consciousness if you're a person of color, is that men's actions such as uh, sorry, is, is that men's actions as such are transforming creative and recreative. See, only the superstructural actors know that. Only the Only the people in the bourgeoisie know that they can direct the course of history. Everybody else is just dragged along, not going along, dragged along for the ride, believing they're going along for the ride in their false consciousness. So They know that they do things. They know that they swing their sickle and harvest grain. They know that they swing their hammer and build buildings, streets, and things. What they do not know in their culture of silence, where they don't have the vocabulary to speak out their oppression, is that uh, men's actions, including their own, are transforming, creative, and recreative. Carrying on, Freire says overcome by the myths of this culture, its ideology, including the myth of their own natural inferiority they do, which is in scare quotes, they do not know that their action upon the world is also transforming. Prevented from having a, quote, structural perception of the facts involving them, they do not know that they cannot, quote, have a voice. That is, that they cannot exercise the right to participate consciously in the socio-historical transformation of society because their work does not belong to them. So Freire characterizes the uneducated as silenced in a very profound way. The word for this that came up later was subaltern completely excluded from the ability to have a voice that achieves anything in the world they're also alienated from knowing their true nature as creators they know that they do things they know that they produce work then that work produces value but because that work does not belong to them Freire says they don't have the right or access to participate in the transformation of society, the creative process that is actually the birthright of man. And they don't even know that they're being excluded from this knowledge by the exploitation of the privileged, who in turn depend on keeping them down to maintain their privileged way of life. This is Marxism. It is also the exact same whisper of the serpent in Genesis 3. Exactly the same. All glory to God who is a tyrant who doesn't want you as equals, and then expels you from your birthright in the garden if you reveal this fact about him to himself? Where then you are flung upon, or whereupon then you are flung into the world miserable, a world of suffering and toil and labor, because you dared to know what you really are—a creator like God. This whole theory is straight satanic Gnosticism. Whether you believe in. Things like God and Satan are not, doesn't matter. Satan is at least the metaphor. This is straight satanic Gnosticism. The, if you want to call it a myth, if you want to believe in it, it doesn't matter, of Satan. And then the structure is Gnosticism, is being reproduced here. And for Ares, solution to this issue is the praxis. Bringing the light of consciousness, like Prometheus, to the man who has been expelled from his birthright and is at war with heaven. Education is for consciousness-raising, therefore, not reproducing the skills that reproduce the oppressive society. So that's the Marxification of education going on a little further. He then says, as an event calling forth the critical reflection of both the learners and educators, notice that he's not saying teachers and students, learners and educators, the literacy process must relate, and this is in italics, speaking the word to transform reality. And to the man's role in this transformation. Okay? Remember, the class consciousness comes in stages. You are a class. That class is oppressed. That class has a pers- uh, special perspective by virtue of being oppressed that it can then use to transform the world, but you need solidarity. That perspective, in fact, gives you a unique historical role as the transformer of the world. And at the last stage of critical consciousness, you know what the. The purpose of being is to get to the communism at the end of the at the the utopia at the end of the rainbow, and it's your job to bring that about, or at least the next stage of revolution to get toward it. So that's what he's talking about as an event calling forth the critical reflection of both the learners and educators. The literacy process must relate speaking the word to transforming reality and to man's role in this transformation. In other words, it must awaken critical consciousness on a deep level. Perceiving the significance of that relationship is indispensable for those learning to read and write if we are really committed to liberation. Such a perception will lead the learners to recognize a much greater right than that that of being literate. They will ultimately recognize that as men they have the right to have a voice. So this is the thing in the title of the section, the process of education as an act of knowing, and Freire says it demands a method. The goal is to give men a voice so that they can participate in the socio-historical transformation of reality so that they can become agents of change, which is going to be accomplished through Marxist revolution. And so this demands a method, and Freire says it looks like this, quote, the adult literacy process as an act of knowing implies the existence of two interrelated contexts. One is the context of authentic dialogue between learners and educators as equally knowing subjects. This is what schools should be, the theoretical context of dialogue. The second is the real concrete context of facts, the social reality in which men exist. So we're going to talk about social reality constantly. We're going to do so in a dialogical method where where dialogue takes place between learners and educators as equally knowing subjects. Equally knowing. The children and the teachers in schools are equally knowing subjects. They just know different things. The peasants and their teachers are equally knowing subjects. They just know different things. And you can see your kids' schools in that little paragraph. The breakdown of order, the breakdown of discipline, the breakdown of hierarchy, the breakdown of boundaries and boundary setting between adults and children. Learning the subject matter itself. The breakdown, I should say, of learning the subject matter itself. The installation of culturally relevant teaching for consciousness raising in place of education. And so from here, Freire elaborates on an important specialized concept and how he thinks about the world. Especially education. This concept is called codification. How he thinks all of this works. Okay, so it's codification. What is codification? It's a complex thing. It has to be explained, actually, in a translator's note in the in the um, footnotes to this chapter, or end notes to this chapter. And so, it, it codification is an abstract representation. This is a quote: representation of the existential situations of the learners. It presents what Chomsky, meaning Noam Chomsky, calls surface structure and deep structure. In other words, we're talking about the hidden curriculum and structural so-called reality. The goal is to reveal the deep structure, the real causes of their conditions, first in codified form to see the the surface structure, which is the appearance of how things actually work, which must be problematized according to Freire in order to start to decodify. Problematizing, showing the problematics and connected in, not the problems with, but the problematics, the ruthless criticism of all that exists according to Marx, enables decodifying. In other words, making the abstract concrete and thus understanding the deep or actual structure the in, in other words the marxist dialectical structure of reality that is adopting the structural thinking freire talked about that is adopting the marxist consciousness of whatever the relevant idea is so this is just reproduction of hegel hegel's dialectic was abstract meets negative to synthesize to the concrete so instead of thesis antithesis synthesis it is abstract negative concrete. So codifying is that you give somebody a abstract representation of their own life, you codify their life. He's going to tell us that it gives you critical distance from it. You can step away from it and examine it as though you're not stuck in it and part of it. Then you problematize it, so you hit it with its negative. and this allows you to decodify it and to understand the oppression that you're actually seeing in the image, which is an image of your own life and thus allows you to understand in a concrete way the oppression that you're in and thus become a knower and a subject in your oppression. So we've got to break this down, we've got to go through an entire complicated page about codification now because it's really key to what's happening. This is the consciousness raising process of the Freyrian pedagogy. This is what they're using culturally responsive teaching in your kid's school to do. And social-emotional learning, of course, is also being used to do this. And it makes clear why culturally relevant teaching, transformative, I heard now there's systemic SEL, transformative SEL is going into systemic social-emotional learning, and so on. This is why they have to be brought into every subject in school, because those are the tools of decodification. Codifying and then decodifying. In other words, critical consciousness raising. Uh, and so Freirean education is to make critical consciousness raising mean literate, mean educated. So in other words, to replace edu- edu- education and literacy, being educated, knowledge with being critically conscious, being a Marxist. So what he says is the surface structure of codification makes the action object whole. Expli- so action and object is hyphenated, the action object whole. It's a one whole thing. It's kind of a little complicated to read. Explicit in a purely taxonomic form. The first stage of decodification or reading, so notice what he's done here. Reading means decodifying, means finding the hidden oppression in systems. In other words, raising a critical consciousness. Reading a situation, reading a circumstance, reading a context, reading a text, finding its hidden oppression. That's decodification. Okay. And so he's now saying that decodifying, in other words, raising a critical consciousness through, is what it means to read. So when he says literacy, he means learning to read. When you catch the pun, reading a situation and reading, being able to actually physically read words are not the same thing, but that's the linguistic pun that he's playing. That's the magic spell. So the first stage of decodification or reading is descriptive. And that's his words, not mine. At this stage, the quote, readers or decodifiers, lest there was any, if you didn't, (laughs) let me actually just read the whole sentence or the pair of sentences without my interpretation, because it's explicitly clear that learning to read and learning to do a Marxist decodification is the same thing for Freire. Having critical consciousness means learning to read. Having a critical consciousness means being literate, means being educated. Nothing else does. So let me just Reread these things straight, with no interruptions. The first stage of decodification, or reading, is descriptive. At this stage, the quote readers, or decodifiers, focus on the relationship between the categories constituting the codification. So literacy has been redefined as reading situations, and it only counts when you read them as a Marxist. So particularly generative situations where you're going to be able to find and see your oppression. And so what people are going to be able to do is they're going to be able to read the problematics in an abstracted form. So maybe they're looking at a picture, for example, of workers being exploited. And then they say, look at the exploitation. Learn to read the exploitation. Where is exploitation happening on the, in that picture? Now, do you see yourself in the picture? you know, after the whole, what's wrong with that? And then, aha, now I see that I'm being exploited. That's the idea. Or you might have that with culturally responsive teaching where say your math lesson, which we talked about in the previous episode is now about poverty stats and and mathematics, uh, as they correlate with race. Aha. Now you see yourself, your racial identity is correlated with poverty or not being in poverty. And you are learning to read the situation of poverty through a racial lens, which is why that's critical race theory in schools. That's Freyrian education. He goes on to say, this preliminary focus on the surface structure is followed by problematizing the codified situation. This leads the learner to the second and fundamental stage of decodification, the comprehension of the codification's deep structure. By understanding the codification's deep structure, the learner can then understand the dialectic that exists between the categories presented in the surface structure as well as the unity between the surface and deep structures. Okay, this is a lot of complicated, jargony stuff. This page was confusing for me. What he's saying is the way that you teach people to read is you give them an image that's... Reflective of their life. If they're farmers, it's something to do with farming. If they're steel workers, it's something to do with steelworking. If they're auto mechanics, it's something to do with the auto mechanic process. If they are accountants, it would be something to do with accountancy. Uh, probably working in a cubicle or something like this. If they are racial, you can do it in the racial context. Whatever it happens to be, you're going to give them images of some form that reflect the context of their life. But it's an image. It's not them then they're going to problematize what they see. And then the goal is going to be to link, to get themselves, to see themselves in the codification of what they're looking at. So if they're a farmer, they see an image of farming, a peasant farmer, they see an image of peasant farming. They see the abuses, master cracking a whip or who knows, not being paid enough, backbreaking work, tiring work out in the sun, something like this. And then they say, wow, that's really bad. That's really oppressive. And they're, they're using the fact of their lived experience. Like, yeah, when I'm out in the sun, it's really awful, blah, blah, blah. That's and they see it from a distance and therefore they're able to start the decodification process and they problematize it and say well that's happening because of the exploitation of the worker they're problematizing why this is happening they're finding the hidden racism in it whatever it happens to be and that's going to start to reveal the deep in the the deep structure they see the, the surface structure and they're going to start to reveal the deep structure which is the uh systemic racism or the systemic classism or the exploitation inherent in the system that they're being that they're looking at, and then they're going to see themselves in that to make it concrete for themselves. So problematizing, Freire is telling us very clearly, is the first step of class consciousness, of conscientization, raising awareness of the oppression in the context, which is otherwise because you're caught up in it deep and hidden. It's using criticism to learn to see the pagan gods, the structures of power, organizing and ordering society and trapping you within it, and pointing out how the privileged create the situation that's problematizing. In our method, Freire tells us the codification initially takes the form of a photograph or a sketch that represents a real existent, or an existent constructed by the learners. When this representation is projected as a slide, the learners affect an operation basic to the fact of knowing. They gain distance from the knowable object. This is critical distance. This is what my friend Mike Nana refers to as standing aside to shit on. You stand aside from the society you live in to shit on it. You're too cool for the society you live in, so you crap on it. That's what he said the postmodern project is. They aren't part of any culture. They separate from themselves and crap on them, crap on especially their own. So this is the actual alienation in the Marxist programming. Marxism says that everything alienates, everything alienates. But the reality is that they alienate. They alienate you and then create that sense of vulnerability and uh, to, to do a cult indoctrination to get you to take up their Marxist doctrine as a pathway out of that because it involves theory. It's not just ideas, but also action. They give you something to do. They get a large amount of commitment. It's very strong cult programming. Marxism is just a gigantic cult programming scheme. Okay. And it starts he- here, as freire is pointing out, with critical distance. You see the thing somewhere else. You can see the problems inherent in the system, in the image, the codification. Then you start to make point out what the problems are and where they come from and the structural elements, therefore, that create them. That's problematization. And then you see yourself in the codification in the end. But what they're actually doing with this critical distance inducing is they are alienating people from the society. They're saying, here's this thing you do like farming. And we'll show you a slide with an image on it of farming. and Look how terrible it is. By the way, you're a farmer. So now you're alienated from farming, where before it was stuff you had to do, right? And so it alienates people from the existing society and then tells them that it's the society, not the Marxist, who actually is doing the alienation. See, you were already alienated. You just didn't know it. And we've now revealed it to you. And here's what you can do about it. That's the message of Marxism. That's cult indoctrination. You create a sense of vulnerability about, and, and negative feeling and concern about the thing that they are involved in, about their own lives. And then you say, we have the solution. All you have to do is join our cult, follow our orders, get in solidarity with us, don't sell any of us out, and attack the attack everybody else. Remove yourself from other situations. So they are alienating, and they use the alienation specifically. Now again, not to get too religious or preachy, but this is Genesis. This is the serpent story in Genesis 3. The serpent alienates Eve, and thus Adam from God. And what is the, What does the Bible say? They knew they were naked and hid in their shame, right? alienated them from God by giving them knowledge, right? So apparently uh, giving them knowledge of good and evil made them ashamed of how they were and alienated them from God. And so that sets up the idea that the serpent then sells them, that it was God's tyranny that led to their expulsion, not their own um, transgression. And so what does Freire say next? This is Experience of distance is undergone as well by the educators so that the educators and learners together can reflect critically on the knowable object that mediates between them. So Prometheus, or the serpent, was always on your side. That's the message here. We can be critical of God. We can be critical of the established order. We can be critical of the logos together as educators and learners. We're as equals. We're in it together. They are against us. Back to Freire, the aim of decodification is to arrive at the critical level of knowing, beginning with the learner's experience of the situation in the real context. So to putting all the religious illusions aside for a second, the goal of the decodification is critical consciousness, arrived at together by the learner in dialogue with the groomer. I'm not going to call him an educator now. The groomer, who's grooming them to see the world in a particular way. The educator is groomer as equals, we're in it together. We're on the same side. Everybody else is against us. Education is grooming. That is, through the typical Marxist inversion, that is ungrooming the grooming that's allegedly implicit in accepting the established order. So this is why it was perfectly predictable what they were going to do with being accused of being groomers. And I said so on Twitter before they started doing it. I called that from a mile away. It was very simple. Called the educators groomers for all the weird sexual stuff, but also the Marxist and the political and social stuff that they're doing to children, grooming them to see the world in a particular way, plus also sexual grooming, quite explicitly sexual grooming through queer theory, comprehensive sex education, social emotional learning, where it touches on those topics. Okay. And I said what they were going to say is no, society, parents, the existing system already grooms people and we are setting them free from that grooming. We are teaching them to see grooming so they won't be groomed by it anymore and break free of it. That's what Freire is selling. It's just straight Freire education. It was the easiest call in the world. What was a little harder to see is that this codification, decodification, critical consciousness is education, cultural process for change or whatever the hell he calls it. The re- cultural action as a process of change or whatever that Freire is talking about. Is grooming. It is Marxist grooming. He's turning. It's he didn't just Marxify education. He turned it into a grooming project, a cult grooming project. And Marxism is the cult. But in the present day, that's identity Marxism is the cult. So that includes not just race, and even I guess to a degree class, but also sex, gender, and sexuality. So you get actual grooming tucked right in there with it, just like Lukacs was doing in the twenties in Hungary. So, groomer schools. The birth of groomer schools is Paulo Ferreri, because his education system is grooming. So the goal of decodification is raising critical consciousness, which is arrived at together by the learner in dialogue as equals with the groomer. Break down all barriers. Whereas the codified representation, Ferreri tells us, is the knowable object, mediating between the knowing subjects decodification, dissolving the codification into its constituent elements, which is, by the way, the negative dialectic or deconstruction, is the operation by which the knowing subjects perceive relationships between the codification's elements and other facts presented by the real context, relationships that were formerly unperceived. So they're grooming them into seeing the oppression inherent in the system, to kind of riff off of uh, other lines from films back in the day. But this is all about turning education into grooming for critical consciousness. In other words, grooming into the Marxist cult. That's what Freire's contribution to education theory is, is how to turn it into grooming into Marxism, into the Marxist cult. Codification, Freire tells us, represents a given dimension of reality as individuals live it. And this dimension is proposed for their analysis in a context other than that in which they live it. There's your abstraction codification, that's step one by the way, thus transforms what was a way of life in the real context into objectum in the theoretical context. The learners, rather than receive information about this or that fact, analyze aspects of their own existential experience represented in the codification. And this is why your kids can't read or do math. And this is the point of culturally relevant or responsive teaching. This is what trans SEL or transformative SEL. And I guess now systemic SEL is all about by using social work and psychology to make excuses, to create generative content. This is math replaced by generative math. Like we talked about, and this is what it's all about is that we're going to create an abstract view of your own life. Use that to do problematizing, to create vulnerability, and then cult grooming. And then you use the cult grooming to decodify. That's all he's talking about. Existential spirit uh, sorry. Existential experience, he tells us, which is pathos, by the way, is a whole. Existential experience is a whole. So your experience is whole. What you're learning otherwise is fragmented. That's the comparison. Existential experience is a whole. In illuminating one of its facets and perceiving the interrelation of that facet with others, the learners tend to replace a fragmented vision of reality with a total vision. In other words, the parts, your own lived experience, can only be understood in terms of the whole existential experience or structural experience. You're just being taught, groomed, to be a Marxist. Education replaced with Marxist cult grooming. From the point of view, Freire tells us, from the point of view of a theory of knowledge, this means that the dynamic between codification of existential situations. So you got to be histrionic about it. Existential situations, this, which is a pun. This, the situations the conditions of your existence and whether or not they're existential, in a deep and profound way. It's a stupid double meaning. From the point of view of a theory of knowledge, this means that the dynamic between codification of existential situations and decodification involves the learners and a constant reconstruction of the former admiration of reality. So a couple of things. He's putting forth an epistemology a theory of knowledge and its knowledge as bourgeois property that excludes other ways of knowing which are only made useful when decodified, that is made critical or Marxist. And secondly, the goal is to groom the learner to be critical to replace how he used to understand the world with a new admiration of it, remember that's a specialized term, which requires critical distance, thus de-identification, thus abstraction, and thus being hit with its negative and problematization, and thus being made concrete by grooming them into the Marxist view of that, in other words, what he calls decodifying it. So remember on admiration, we talked about that in the previous episode, actually a couple episodes ago, this is a very Rousseauian, romantic, narcissistic view. The Vulnerable narcissism is rife throughout all of this. Uh, narcissistic to the self. Just to remind you, this is what he says about admiration. To admire is to objectify the not I. It is a dialectical operation that characterizes man as man differentiating him from the animal. So man knows he's a man because he can stand aside from what he examines, including himself in a situation and envision, in, envision changing it or transforming it. That's what he's saying. Okay, That's what differentiates him from the animals, the ability to admire, to stand aside from at a critical distance, to problematize, and thus decodify. It is directly associated, he says, with the creative dimension of his language. To admire implies that man stands over against his not-I in order to understand it. So now man becomes the object of his own efforts. For this reason, there's no act of knowing without admiration of the object to be known. In other words, standing aside from it, seeing it as not I. So with a codification, which is a symbolic image, like a picture or or a video or something of something bad happening, you don't see it as yourself. So then you can critique it because it's not what you're caught up in. Then you can re-identify with it. Okay? For this reason, there is no act of knowing without admiration of the object to be known. If the act of knowing is a dynamic act and no knowledge is ever complete, then in order to know, man not only admires the object, but must always be readmiring his former admiration. So you're constantly rethinking what you thought about. You're taking your previous idea and objectifying it, separating yourself from it, and you're doing the Marxist practice, praxis, I should say, of reflection over and over and over again. Of course this is what Hegel called speculation as well. It's just a reproduction of that. He says when we readmire our former admiration, always an admiration of we are simultaneously admiring the act of admiring and the object admired. So now you're making your theory and praxis more unified because you're admiring the act of admiring. You're actually reflecting upon the way that you went about reflecting. Stupid. So that we can overcome the errors we made in our former admiration. This re-admiration leads us to a perception of an interior perception. This is just super Hegel, is all it is. It's just reinvention of Hegel in his Marxified education. In the process of decodifying representations of their existential situations and perceiving former perceptions, the learners gradually, hesitatingly, and timorously place in doubt the opinion they held of reality and replace it with a more and more critical knowledge. In other words, it's grooming to insert, go to the Hegelian language, it's grooming to insert Vernunft, which is what Hegel called reason, over Verstand, which is understanding or science and facts. In other words, it's pathos over logos. Their speculative dialectical consciousness of the phenomenology of their experience is awakened through appealing to pathos the feeling of expression or of of oppression the feeling of their experience or the feeling of imagining other people's oppression and experience but now he turns to the idea of internalized oppression within this whole structure he says let us suppose that we were to present to groups from among the dominated classes codifications that portray their imitation of the dominators cultural models okay so let us show the peasants how they pretend to be the aristocrats, okay, in codificated form, so in images. So you show them dressing nicer than they than they're like wearing nice clothes or wearing high heels or whatever it happens to be. You show them imitating the uh, dominating classes as as the Marxists have it, modes of being. This is a natural tendency, he says, of the oppressed consciousness that at a given moment is that they're going to try to emulate or copy the cultural models. They're going to try to pretend that they have higher culture. They're going to aspire to the nice things of society. So he says, Imagine we codify that. And we try to make them look ridiculous for aspiring to have nice things or whatever. The dominated persons would perhaps, in self defense, deny the truth of the codification. They'd say, No, it's not. I just want to look nice or whatever. As they deepened their analysis, however, they would begin to perceive that their apparent imitation of the dominator's models is a result of their interiorization of these models. And above all, the myths of the superiority of the dominant classes that cause the dominated to feel inferior. Okay, now imagine we did all this again, but we're not thinking about peasants. We're thinking about what they teach children about, say, black children about acting white. Mm -hmm. Let us suppose we were to present to uh, black students, black learners, I should say, codifications that portray the way they imitate white people or act white and their cultural models punctuality, responsibility, et cetera, et cetera, whatever the very meritocracy, whatever the various pieces of, of white supremacy culture that the Smithsonian told us about. So let me just reread this in critical race theory language. Let us suppose that we were present to groups of black children, images that portray the way they imitate white culture, which is a natural tendency of black consciousness. When it's asleep, the black children would perhaps in self-defense deny the truth of those images. And as they deepen their analysis, however, they would begin to perceive that their apparent imitation of white culture is a result of their internalized racism, their internalization of these models of white culture itself, and above all, the myth of superiority of white people. Of white supremacy, their own internalized white supremacy, that caused the black children to feel inferior in the first place. So Larry Elder becomes the black face of white supremacy. It's the same. What in fact Freire says is pure interiorization appears in a naive analysis to be imitation. You're just acting white. At bottom, when the dominated classes reproduce the dominator's style of life, when black people act white, it is because the dominators Live within the dominated, so the whiteness has gone inside of the black people who are acting white. The dominated can eject the dominators. The blacks can only eject their white supremacy by getting distance from them and objectifying them. Only then can they recognize them as their antithesis. This is a similar prescription, or similar to the prescription um, given by Franz Fanon with regard to the colonized. Franz Fanon is not creative either. They all do the same thing over and over again. There's nothing to any of this. So Franz Fanon is a guy I haven't talked about a lot. He wrote a book called The Wretched of the Earth. He also wrote another book called, that was in 62. Uh, another one was called uh, Black Skin, White Masks. He's talking about being um, the, the state of colonization. So you can hear what it's about, black skin, white masks, acting white, right? And he says, that with regard to the colonized, they have an imperative to decolonize, Including by violence against their colonizers, so that they can recover their sense of self and self-esteem, their own cultural identification. Cultural Marxism is the belief that the dominant culture is colonizing everyone, but only the upper class is benefiting from that. Freire remarked earlier in this chapter on how marginalization is a kind of violence, and now he's saying that education should be getting be about getting learners to de-identify with their dominators. Put all together. This is how you use education to make a red guard, like in China, like in communist China under Mao. Parents, establishment teachers, grandparents, priests, etc., are trying to colonize learners or kids with the existing society from which they must detach and gain critical distance. See your family, your nation, your culture, your religion, etc., as oppressive and colonizing, needing to be resisted, including by violence then detach, make it abstract, codify it so that you can detach from it so that you can gain critical distance to problematize it. Then you can decodify it and bring about the new society. So they frame this out though, as you, that the learner, if you will, has to realize that this whole process is of colonization, if you will is actually a form of violence. By consequence, it marginalizes you. It puts you in bad situations. It overwrites your cultural heritage or your true racial identity or your sexual identity or whatever it is. That So the society is marginalizing you by doing this. And so getting people to respond by violence is easily groomed into these people. Now, this is when this is your kids and they're using these identity politics in the Maoist way, the neo-Maoist, if we have to be technical way, that we've discussed in previous podcasts many times, but especially the Groomer Schools 3 podcast, which you should listen to, you can see how you're going to lead these people to this kind of neo-Maoist idea. And then all that suffering you had before was a result of violence that's inherent to the system, the violence inherent in the system. Now you need to go, and I was quoting from Monty Python and Holy Grail, by the way. In other words, they were making fun of that view. Now you have to go and overthrow the existing society by being violent against the people who are doing it, parents, grandparents, establishment teachers, priests, and so on. The the seduction here is that if we were in a genuinely oppressive society, it would work this way. This is like a Marxist society. They actually do this. And so Marxists project that state of affairs onto free societies, which is an inversion of reality because they're Gnostics and miserable and entitled vulnerable narcissists. And they do it practically speaking, to manipulate and gain power over those societies, which they are then going to turn into uh, hell holes. So we find Freire calling for cultural revolution. And I mean, literally, for Freire, the point of education is to spark the cultural revolution. Marxism is the what. Maoism is the how for doing that. Marxism is the theory that's being installed. Maoism is the way you get it there. He says, to the extent, however, that the interiorization of the dominator's values is not only an individual phenomenon, but also a social and cultural one, ejection must be achieved by a type of cultural action in which culture negates culture. That is, culture as an interiorized product that in turn conditions men's subsequent acts must become the objects of men's knowledge so that they can perceive its conditioning power. Cultural action occurs at the level of superstructure. It can only be understood by what Althusser calls the dialectic of overdetermination. This analytic, Althusser, by the way, Luis Althusser, Althusser is uh, Michel Foucault's PhD advisor. This analytic tool is a structuralist Marxist. This analytic tool prevents us from falling into mechanistic explanations or what is worse, mechanistic action. An understanding of its pre. Uh, An understanding of it precludes surprise that cultural myths remain after the infrastructure is transformed, even by revolution. When the creation of a new culture is appropriate but impeded by interiorized cultural residue, this residue, these myths, must be expelled by means of culture. Cultural action and cultural revolution at different stages constitute the modes of this expulsion. Okay? He's calling for cultural revolution. The reason is that there's been an internalization of the dominant culture that has to be expelled in cultural revolution by culture-negating culture is what's needed. The reason is because cultural action occurs at the level of the superstructure, which the infrastructure is uh, excluded from. Only the bourgeoisie, if you will, the upper class, can actually do cultural action. So the means of production of the culture, the means of cultural production, the means of human production have to be seized in order to be able to move the the needle at all. That's what he's calling for. So we need a cultural revolution. He says to analyze the codification and its deep structure is, for this very reason, to reconstruct the former praxis and to become capable of a new and different praxis. The relationship between the theoretical context in which the codified representations of objective facts are analyzed and the concrete context, where these facts occur, has to be made real such education must have the character of commitment. It implies a movement from the concrete context, which provides the objective facts, to the theoretical context, which is going to override it, where these facts are analyzed in depth, and then back to the concrete context, where men experiment with new forms of praxis. So this is the adult literacy process as an act of knowing. It's the retooling of education through Marxification, to stimulate the conditions for a cultural revolution by turning education into a Marxist cult grooming process. In other words, like I said, this will be achieved through grooming, which he calls Dialogue is Methodology. There's an entire chapter in the Pedagogy of the Oppressed about. Let's pause for a second. We just heard Freire say that learning should take place between educators and learners as equals, but they're not equals especially when they're children. They're especially not equals when applied to the education of children, which, to be fair, Freire doesn't explicitly do, but all the education theorists since 85 when this book came out have been doing. Blurring the boundary between adult and child isn't just socio-political grooming like is advocating. It is, wide, it is a wide-open door on its own to sexual grooming as well, not just for creepers and pedos, but also for Lucasian sexual Marxists, which is to say queer theorists in the modern parlance. Remember that George Lukacs understood that if you sexualize children, you can break them from those things, their family, their religion, their nation, their culture. You can sever them one generation from the next. You can destabilize them. You can induce, as it turns out, functionally speaking, as Herbert Marcuse's Biological Foundation for Socialism kind of indicates in his essay on Liberation, you can induce uh, personality disorders. In fact, that's how you induce personality disorders in children frequently, is by forcing them into having uh, uh, inappropriate relationship modes with adults, especially. Okay, Children and, and adults are not equals. Children require boundaries, they require distance from adults, they require separation. We see all these teachers, what do they want to do? What are they always wanting to do? They well, want to talk about my love life, I want to talk about my relationship with my students like they're my friends. They're not. You're not equals. It's not appropriate. Your job is to teach them things, and you're not doing it, because you've blurred these boundaries, and the queer theorists, and the Luk- uh, Lukak- uh, I guess, I don't know how to say this, Lukacian, Lukacian. Um, sexual Marxists understood that the best way to get the revolution in the children is to sexualize the children. It does all kinds of things. Destabilizes them, creates personality disorders which will never stabilize. They'll never be happy. It's easy by focusing on people's feelings and their sexual stuff and looking at themselves and obsessing about their own sex and gender and sexuality and who they're attracted to and giving it special names to induce vulnerable narcissism in them because you're engaging in an inappropriate set of behaviors with children. Not just inappropriate relationships, but inappropriate behaviors that are uh, building entitlement by uh, affirming, constantly affirming everything that they do, putting themselves at the center of their own world, nothing to knock them off of their own pedestal. So Freire's key pedagogical model installed within his Marxification of education aka the pedagogy of the oppressed, is the so-called dialogical model of education, which is just going to be this grooming. It seems to be one of the key things that lit Henry Drew on fire about Freire that led to Henry Drew bringing Freire's work into the North American context so vigorously, made him into Freire's evangelist. We have to see the Freirean model, the dialogical model, he calls it, as education through grooming. Let's see what Freire says to see if I'm overstating it. He says, it might seem as if some of our statements defend the principle that, whatever the level of the learners, they ought to reconstruct the process of human knowing in absolute terms. In fact, so no, not absolute, always relational because it's Marxism. In fact, he says, when we consider adult literacy, learning, or education in general as an act of knowing, we are advocating a synthesis between the educator's maximally systematized knowing and the learner's minimally systematized knowing, a synthesis achieved in dialogue. Grooming. This is grooming. He says, the educator's role is to propose problems about the codified existential situations in order to help the learners arrive at a more and more critical view of their reality cult grooming. The educator's responsibility, as conceived by this philosophy, is thus greater in every way than that of his colleague, whose duty it is to, transform, to transmit information that the learners memorize. Such an educator can simply repeat what he has read, and often misunderstood, since education for him does not mean an act of knowing. This is grooming. This is the birth of groomer schools. This is the recreation of educators as groomers, which is bad all the time. Cult grooming is bad, but it is a nightmare when positioning adults and children falsely as equals. And not just inappropriate, this is not just inappropriate anyway, but it's also an open door to pedosexual grooming, which it has no means to stop, especially when topics of sex, gender, and sexual identities, in other words, gender Marxism are part of the grooming, instead of, say, just focusing on Marxist class grooming. This is why the nightmares... You want to know... I keep seeing, like, Libs of TikTok, my favorite accounts on on the Twitter and other social media, shares these videos of these nightmare pedo-groomers in schools saying crazy stuff. And one of the things that she frequently says is, why does this keep happening? This is why the nightmare of groomer schools is happening and happening everywhere. This is why teachers want to talk about their love lives and sometimes their sex lives with their children in their classes. This is why they want to introduce sexual things to children. Not just to have the bound not just have the boundaries been blurred, but their pedagogical model is based on grooming, cult grooming, which always ends up involving sexual grooming. But here it's of your kids in schools, public and private. So the queer theory covered in groomer schools too if you recall, where they say that we're trying to break down childhood innocence, seems mostly like a superficial justification for a deeper project of grooming. Marxist grooming, sociopolitical grooming, which is what Freire is explicitly calling for, and calling it education. So as horrible as that is, even though it goes deeper in multiple ways, grooming is at the heart of Freirean education. We're looking at Marxism, we're looking at narcissism, we're looking at sexual grooming coming in, uh, directly through both the front and back door in this regard. The Frearian method of education, Frearian pedagogy is cult grooming, which is especially inappropriate to apply to children while opening the nightmare door to sexual grooming and sexual destabilization and personality de- personality destabilization in children through inappropriate, Age inappropriate uh, materials. Or remember also from that paper in, sec- in in groomer schools too. If you don't recall, I read a paper about from queer theory about early childhood education, and she says in there important things like queer theory is not about creating stable LGBTQ identities. It's about creating fluid identities. It's not about creating stable identities. So therefore, it's about creating. Unstable identities or destabilized identities or preventing identities from stabilizing with regard to sex, gender, sexuality, romantic orientation, and all these things that are very self uh, obsessive and lead to also developing vulnerable narcissism in addition to other problems. Okay. And what did, what was the point though? Was that childhood innocence has to be broken down, that early childhood education and childhood development, theories of childhood development need to be rethought in light of queer theory is what she says, is what Hannah Dyer, the author, says explicitly. So if you remember that, the whole point of, for her, queer theory touching education is to rethink what is appropriate for children at all, according to queer theory, which is gender Marxism. It's not at all about creating healthy, stable identities for children who happen to be in different sexual orientations or whatever, whether they're lesbian, gay, straight, bi, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It's not about creating stable sexual identities, etc. It is about creating unstable identities and rethinking the entirety of the psychology of early childhood and early childhood education, extending from that, so that you can redefine developmentally appropriate to include sexualization of children, so that they can groom them into queer theory, which isn't the same as (laughs) grooming them into sex, but it is exactly what will happen as a result. It's mostly grooming them into inappropriate modes for a child, because they want to rethink the entire childhood development model to be based off of their theory, which is going to induce personality disorders and other destabilizing problems for them, which the Marxists who are implementing this, not necessarily the people on the ground, but the Marxists who created this stuff, know. Marxists have had for over 100 years a program of using sexual grooming as a, of children as a means to destabilize children and create the conditions for the revolution. And we've talked about that at length. Now, I wish I could just kind of, this chapter is long and deep and complicated, and Freire now takes a really deep turn in this this chapter that I would rather skip, frankly, but we're going to do this. It's a little bit of an aside because it's key to seeing something I keep talking about a lot, which is that Marxism is a religion of pathos. Christianity is a religion of logos. Marxism is, is a religion of pathos. Pathos meaning feeling, logos meaning logic. Okay. So before. I do um, I want to point out that later in the section, Freire points out something that ties in with what we were just talking about, and it's key to his view about why education is needed in this way, uh, why it needs to be Marxist and Gnostic. And he says, quote, they may even end up realizing that if intrinsic evil exists, it is part of the structures, and that it is the structures that need to be transformed. Okay, So why is he wanting groomer schools? Because through groomer schools, he might groom people into realizing that if intrinsic evil exists, if anything bad happens, it is part of the structures. And that it is the structures that need to be transformed. So we're talking about revolutionary grooming as well. So now let's get into this tangent. Most of the rest of this section, as it turns out, is really just strange examples from his third world experience in the third world context, but he has this really deep dive into Socratic intellectualism, and this is key to understanding that Marxism was a religion of pathos. I almost took this part out and was going to do as a separate podcast, but let's just go. Socratic intellectualism, he said, which mistook the definition of the concept for knowledge of the thing defined and this knowledge as virtue did not constitute a true pedagogy of knowing, even though it was dialogical. So Socrates was in dialogue with his various characters, so it was a dialogical approach, dialogue-based approach to knowledge, allegedly between equals, whatever. But he says it's not a pedagogy of knowing. Plato's theory of dialogue failed to go beyond the Socratic theory of the definition as knowledge, even though for Plato, one of the necessary conditions for knowing was that man- be capable of a priest de conscience. And though the passage from doxa to logos was in doctrine to logic, was indispensable for man to achieve truth. For Plato, the priest de conscience, did not refer to what man knew or did not know or knew badly about his dialectical relationship with the world. It was concerned rather with what man once knew and forgot at birth to know was to remember or recollect forgotten knowledge the apprehension of both doxa and logos and the overcoming of doxa by logos occurred not in the man-world relationship but in the effort to remember or rediscover a forgotten logos for dialogue to be a method of true knowledge the knowing subjects much must approach reality scientifically in order to seek the dialectical connections that explain the form of reality. Thus, to know is not to remember something previously known and now forgotten, nor can doxa be overcome by logos apart from the dialectical relationship of man with his world, apart from men's reflective action upon the world. To be an act of knowing, then, the adult literacy process must engage the learners in the constant problematizing of their existential situations. In other words, it must be based in pathos. This problematizing employs generative words chosen by specialized educators in preliminary investigation of what we call the minimal linguistic universe of the future learners. So what he's saying is that Socrates used dialectic and dialogue but had it all wrong. Socrates was wrong, sorry, Socrates was all about questioning doctrine. That's doxa in order to discover actual logic, Logos. But Freire says this doesn't work, and is based on a wrong, which is the Neoplatonist model, which, by the way, he knows that Hegel took up but adjusted. Hegel moved the ball from recollection to speculation, and reconstituted the dialectic negatively from the Socratic form. Marx, wallowing in his vulnerable narcissism, and following Rousseau more closely, moved the goal into pathos. The lived experience of oppression, constant problematizing as an act of knowing, in other words, engaging intentionally the pathos. Thus, what Freire is saying is that doxa or doctrine can be overcome not by logic but by feeling, not by order but by chaos. So, Marxism is a religion of pathos. Freire is telling us you can't actually, so you basically have this kind of order to the world, you have doctrine. We're just going to lay out, we're going to say what the world is, we're going to impose that idea upon the world. The ideologists do that in the Marxist theory. And you can't overcome doctrine through logical thought because the for Freire, logical thought is just reproducing the doctrine because it's captured by the doctrine. The Socratic model won't work. You only end up reproducing the forms of the existing world because they had it all wrong. For him, he says, no, you have to get down to the real lived experience. You have to get down to the real lived experience, that pathos, that lived experience, that feeling, that sentiment, that you actually experience by being oppressed in the world. That gives you special insight. That can break through and say this doctrine is horrible. And then that gives you access to true understanding. So we're replacing logos with pathos because that's how you break through doctrine or ideology, as it were. It's a religion of pathos. And like I said, to really reiterate that Freire now dips into the relevance of this throughout the Third World in his experience, and throws out two different ways that the dictatorships in the Third World can be challenged, which is another false dichotomy. Um, either they can be challenged; they can be challenged by imperial powers from outside, what he calls director societies, which reproduce the oppressive colonial logic, or they can be overthrown by a Marxist revolution from within. This choice, of course, is false because other kinds of revolutions could occur that don't involve Marxism at all. You could overthrow a dictator, not with an external dictator, uh, for liberty through responsibility and individualism. For example, say like the American Revolution, which is kind of unique in that regard. He then goes on to say something important to his method using all of this, which is that denunciation and annunciation, and in that finding what he calls critical hope says the expansionist interests of the director societies are implicit implicit in all such notions these societies can never relate to the third world as partners so you can think of now like teachers and students since partnership presupposes equals no matter how many different uh, no matter how different the equal parties may be and can never be established between parties antagonistic to each other thus quote salvation of the third world by the director societies can only mean its domination Again, rescuing illiterate people through teachers can only reproduce domination, wherein its legitimate aspiration to independence lies in its utopian vision to save the director societies in the very act of freeing itself. In this sense, the pedagogy that we defend, conceived in a significant area of the third world, is itself a utopian pedagogy. By this very fact, It is full of hope, for to be utopian is not to be merely idealistic or impractical, but rather to engage in denunciation and annunciation. Our pedagogy cannot do without a vision of man and of the world. That's why he started the chapter with one, It which is the Marxist one. It formulates a scientific humanist conception that finds its expression in a dialogical practice in which the teachers and learners together in the act of analyzing a dehumanizing reality denounce it while announcing its transformation, reimagining, right, in the name of the liberation of man. For this very reason, denunciation and annunciation in this utopian pedagogy are not meant to be empty words, but a historic commitment. Denunciation of a dehumanizing situation today increasingly demands precise scientific understanding of that situation. Of course, scientific means Marxist. So does historic, by the way. Similarly, the enunciation of its transformation increasingly requires a theory of transforming action. Yet, neither act by itself implies the transformation of the denounced reality or the establishment of that which is announced. Rather, as a moment in a historical process, the announced reality is already present in the act of denunciation and annunciation. So Freire's pedagogy is utopian and it's full of hope because it's based on this model in which everyone comes together in solidarity to denounce whatever currently exists, ruthless criticism of everything that exists, like Marx said, while announcing the imaginary alternative, which is utopian, thus escaping the negativity trap of neo-Marxism. This is why Freire is a prophet, because he he brought hope where there was before negativity. That is why the utopian character of her educational theory, he says, in practice. That is why the utopian character of educational theory and practice is as permanent as education itself, which is for us, uh, which for us is cultural action. Its thrust toward denunciation and annunciation cannot be exhausted when the reality denounced today seeds its place tomorrow to the reality previously announced in the denunciation. Drink. When education is no longer utopian, that is when it no longer embodies the dramatic unity of denunciation and annunciation. It is either because the future has no more meaning for men, or because men are afraid to risk living the future as creative overcoming of the present, which has become old. The more likely explanation is generally the latter. That is why some people today study all the possibilities the future contains, in order to, quote, domesticate it, and keep it in line with the present, which they, which is what they intend to maintain, If there is any anguish in director societies hidden beneath the cover of their cold technology, it springs from their desperate determination that their metropolitan status be preserved in the future. Among the things the third world may learn from the metropolitan societies, there is that this is fundamental, not to replicate those societies when its current utopia becomes fact. When we defend such a conception of education, realistic precisely to the extent that it is utopian, hold up, realistic precisely to the extent that it is utopian, that is to the extent that it denounces what is, uh, what in fact is, sorry, to the, (laughs) let me just do that part again. When we defend such a conception of education, realistic precisely to the extent that it is utopian, that is to the extent that it denounces what in fact is, and finds therefore between denunciation and its realization the time of its praxis, we are attempting to formulate a type of education that corresponds to the specifically human mode of being, which is historical. There is no enunciation without denunciation. Just as every denunciation generates annunciation. without the latter, hope is impossible. In an authentic utopian vision, however, Hoping does not mean folding one's arms and waiting. Waiting is only possible when one filled with hope seeks through reflective action to achieve that announced future, which is being born with the denunciation. All you have to do is criticize. Remember what Herbert Marcuse said, that the uh, the, utopian, the utopian society is contained within the existing society if you just engage in the negative thinking that criticizes the existing society? It's just a recreation of critical theory or critical Marxism here. That, he says, is why there is no genuine hope in those who intend to make the future repeat their present, or in those who see the future as something predetermined. Both have a domesticated notion of history. The for- in other words, they, don't, they haven't seized conscious control of it. The former because they want to stop time, the latter because they are certain only about a future they already know. Utopian hope on the contrary, is engagement full? <laughs> is engagement full of risk? No kidding. Utopian hope is an engagement full of risk. Sheesh. That is why the dominators who merely denounce those who denounce them, and have nothing to announce but the presentation of the status quo, can never be utopian or, for that matter, prophetic. Remember, if you will, that a permanent prophetic vision for society through Marxified education is what Henry Giroux said Freire brings to the table. And it's, of course, a self-fulfilling prophecy like in all cults. He says a utopian pedagogy of denunciation and enunciation such as ours will have to be an act of knowing the denounced reality at the level of alphabetization, making into alphabets, alphabetization and post-alphabetization, which are in each case cultural action. That's why there is such emphasis on the continual problematization of the learner's existential situations as represented in the codified images. The longer the problematization proceeds and the more the subjects enter into the essence of the problematized object, the more they are able to unveil this essence. Pathos, pathos, pathos. The more they unveil it, the more their awakening consciousness deepens, thus leading to their conscientization of the situation by the poor classes their critical self-insertion into reality, that is their conscientization, makes the transformation of their state of apathy into the utopian state of denunciation and enunciation a viable project. That's a whole lot of stuff to say. Constantly criticize the existing society. Tell you everybody you're going to reimagine a better future. Do this endlessly without ever taking up anything practical. And we can transform the society, but you can also find hope in this process of endless problematization, which constantly awakens a deeper consciousness, because it overcomes a state of apathy that comes with one of the two other modes, he says, that exist, which is a terrible, terrible oversimplification, which is that you are a dominator reproducing the society on purpose for your own benefit, or that you have given up in false consciousness and decided that it's just how it is, and you accept it. And that's what Marx said makes religion into the opium of the masses. He's not a lot creative either. But your kids, you need to understand, are the tools for this culturally responsive fever dream and the permanent revolution that Freire is calling for. No stability, no building, nothing but problematizing and permanent revolutionary change so that nothing ever becomes a status quo. Nothing can be built on this. Where we might say that logos, the logic, is the rock of being, and if you're Christian, you're really going to resonate with that. Pathos is, this, is this like sand. You're trying to build on sand, and it slips away. Or as Goethe put it, if we read the Marxist definition of truth on Marxists.org, as Goethe said, there is no truth that's not relative because everything in the end withers away. It's sand. Freirian pedagogy exists to groom your children into this kind of dysfunctional entitled thinking to become louts like karl marx vulnerable narcissists everything else follows from that permanent destabilization permanent denouncing of whatever is and announcing one's entitled wishes about one imagines about which one imagines the world could possibly become that's a utopian hope. That's a critical hope. Permanent destabilization of your kids to achieve it. In groomer schools, born under Polifari's groomer education. This will result in fascists, of course, making use of the chaos to install their own tyranny, at which point all of these fools will bleat that their pure and glorious movement was co-opted and their real program hasn't been tried yet again. And that's what will happen every time. Marxism is just the sales department for fascism, and so it is right now. You think that Klaus Schwab doesn't have a plan? You think the World Economic Forum doesn't know why it's using DEI under its S and ESG? You think it has no idea? It's because it's insanely destabilizing, which gives them an inordinate amount of arbitrary power. Everything that could mobilize a defense against you is completely destabilized because of the DEI, programs, the social justice programs that give you a higher social score in your environmental social governance score. They know what they're doing. They're actualizing communist destabilization in your children, particularly because it creates conditions in which they can force a total control system. They, They have a plan. They know what they're doing. But this all results from the fundamental Gnostic belief of Marxism, which is The entitled vulnerable narcissists believe themselves entitled to be in the Garden of Eden where everything is taken care of for them. Nobody ever suffers and nothing ever has to be maintained. It just works, which is why you see people saying, oh, I don't see what the big deal is. Why people are so worried about food security. Food is at the grocery store. And you say, how does it get to the grocery store? And they say things like, it's just there. They have no clue what's going on, or how things work. Now, this chapter wraps up with a strange section, which we'll spend a little time on, not as much, called Sowers of the Word. We now is, have established though, that, that freerian education is groomer school. The birth of groomer schools is freerian education, which is the marxification of education from the first half of this chapter. One must not think, Freyrian tells us, however, one must not think that learning to read and write precedes conscientization, or vice versa. Conscientization occurs simultaneously with the literacy or post-literacy process. It must be so. In our educational method, the word is not something static or disconnected from men's existential experience, but a dimension of their thought language about the world. In other words, literacy and education and uh, and critical consciousness are one and the same for Freire. No big news here. It's the Marxification of education through a process of grooming, through dialogue, of equals, educator and learner. He then goes on to say a lot of things about why this supposedly works, even though it doesn't, and that these sound very much like it enhances engagement. The engagement argument's usually given uh, through anecdotes by Marxist educators who are reimagining education. And they don't have any real evidence that it works because it doesn't. So they talk about this student or that student or this class or that class in these special circumstances in very small numbers where something great happened. And that's their edu- that's their evidence. Um, you see this particularly in programs like Culturally Relevant Teaching, which reproduced the Freyrian model through Identity Marxism, and they'll talk about a couple of classes that were particularly unique in some dead poet society way, and the next thing you know, you had like a Stand by me, kumbaya moment, and everything worked out great, so therefore remake all of education according to this garbage, which maybe worked in a special case, like how social emotional learning can help in special cases with actual troubled kids provided by actual therapists in actual controlled therapeutic environments, not in classrooms by teachers who are not therapists, who are practicing psychology without a license on groups in unregulated, uncontrolled, non-therapeutic spaces on large groups of people whose, uh, Backgrounds and, and, and issues are too complex to be engaging in that space. But it works when you do it correctly in small settings with properly trained professionals. So why not just do it with everybody uh, at once through people who are not properly trained? But it turns out this engagement claim, like if we put rap songs in to like the classroom that black kids will like school better, they'll engage more. If you make the statistics in the math class talk about real facts of their life, politically relevant facts, they'll think it's more interesting to learn statistics. That happens pretty rarely, as it turns out. It almost never happens. Um, but it does insert a political point and hijack the lesson. The engagement claim isn't even exactly true. Um, it's a little more than a belief that people, including kids, can become more involved because there's a dark side to this when their favorite subjects are on the table. But what are most people's or many people's favorite subjects, especially kids in a grooming situation like this, uh, favorite subject in the world themselves and their lives and their friends and their enemies in class? Little social dynamics and situations is the favorite thing to talk about. Way more interesting than math because we're social animals. The point of the teacher is actually to discipline the environment to make sure that the learning process about skills is there that overcomes those difficulties. The point of social and emotional learning is to deal with the kids who can't overcome those on their own to give them extra help in unique and formally trained and special therapeutic environments that can help them get that. And they're perverting the entire thing by saying it increases engagement to, say, put rap songs into the lessons because then black kids will like school better or something. This isn't engagement with subject matter, it's a simulation of engagement, which happens to induce more narcissism and to hijack lessons. That's what the argument is really being made about. That's what the generative themes thing here is. And so Freire relates a number of stories of peasants gaining agency and mastery as they became literate, the kind of heartwarming stuff educators you know, get excited about. By the way, that's more pathos. And that's where this turn of phrase "sowers of the word" comes from, uh, by playing off of their agricultural lives. He cites a professor who says these people are becoming sowers of the world of the word because they're sowers of say grain or whatever seeds they plant. To me, what Freire is actually doing in this last part of the book or section chapter, I should say, is that he's misreading direct claims being made by the peasants. This is just like where Rousseau misunderstood the people in colonial contexts and believed that they had completely different things. And he projected his own selfish, idiotic views over, if you know those stories, um, where he misinterpreted the stories about how uh, native populations in the Caribbean uh, perceived time or whatever. And then said, wow, we well, have to make savages made to live in cities. We have, They have a more, you know natural and instinctive approach but they can't build anything so you've got to dialectically synthesize them. Misunderstood entirely what was in I think the main example was that they had a different notion of ownership because they were more communal. And so I think Freire is misreading the direct claims that he's presenting made by peasants. He's putting his own stupid communist view over it and so basically the peasants are saying I learned to read and that allowed me, they literally say this, it allowed me to take on new responsibilities and to meet them. For example, going to the city and navigating it, which I used to be afraid of doing, or taking up the idea of tool repair or tool purchasing, um, responsibility over other people, becoming a kind of a boss, and that they needed literacy to be able to do this. And so becoming literate allowed them to take responsibility over these new tasks. So clearly the responsibility model is correct. But through Freire's own weird beliefs, which are communism and Marxism, He's actually saying, no, this made the reality less magical, more real, and they became less afraid. So it was really good. And what it really was, was that we made them literate through generative terms and they became politically active. When that's exactly the opposite of what they've said. Though he doesn't repeat it specifically here yet, he does at the end. Um, He just attributes all this to his generative words approach, which is to say culturally relevant and responsive teaching. The context of what we've just been reading through shows what happens to them. You can groom people into seeing the system itself as a problem and induce them into an oppressed identity and solidarity because taking responsibility would be irresponsible and a betrayal of the people you leave behind when you go join the existing society, leaving them even deeper in their oppression. When I first read the pedagogy of the oppressed about a year and a half ago, that's what I really thought it was about was that you can teach people, they have a choice, you can teach them to be responsible to get out of their dependency, but the problem is only some of them make it, and they make the problem worse for everybody they leave behind. Or you can teach them to be in solidarity, to overthrow the existing system. And therefore, they won't do that, but you're teaching them to be Marxists, right? Um, So the thing that he doesn't say yet but he does say at the end of the chapter is that, that it's really all about grooming people into a sense of solidarity rather than personal responsibility. In other words, grooming people into Marxism rather than into taking responsibility and making a success, even though he does it by giving examples of people taking responsibility and it being good for them. And at the the very end of the chapter, he says, to undertake such a work, it is necessary to have faith in the people solidarity with them it is necessary to be utopian in the sense in which we have used the word so that's really what we're we're dealing with with Freery. it is to instead of teaching people to take responsibility and better their own lives in the existing system it is to become marxist to overthrow the existing system instead and to therefore accept new masters as marxists apparently But to to this whole point, diverting, um, Freire includes an important footnote. He says, the right, as a conservative force, needs no utopia. This is how he thinks about the world. This is how Marxists think about conservatives. This is why they hate them. This is why repressive tolerance exists. This is why the right has to be stamped out and the left has to be tolerated, no matter how violent it is, meaning the Marxists, nobody else is the left. He says the right, as a conservative force, needs no utopia. Its essence is the affirmation of existing conditions, a fact and not a utopia, or else the desire to revert to a state which was once an accomplished fact. The right strives to idealize actual conditions, not to change them. In other words, the right wants to maintain existing conditions through ideology. What the right needs. Is fraud, not utopia. Pretty deep. So each of these stories Freire is telling here with these Marxists, or sorry, with these peasants that he's misinterpreting to say that they're making a Marxist point when they're actually saying that resp- taking responsibility and learning things can work. For you know, hooked on phonics worked for me, um, which means that you became literate, and the poor bastards who didn't become literate are even worse off because they have fewer people like them to commiserate with, and their vulnerable narcissism. Each of these stories is very emotional, which reiterates my point that this is a religion of pathos. It's persuasion by pathos. This is why you see them. If you listen to the social justice Marxists, the identity Marxists or woke Marxists tell their stories, they're always, you know, they give their little theory and then they tell some sob story about, or they start with the sob story and then give their theory. If you read their academic papers, it's always like, here's this you know, formal academic crap. Here's some sob story. Here's some emotionally relevant thing. Remember when we read through mapping the margins and I said that, you know, we read the introduction, we read the conclusion as a, a couple of podcasts, but then I said in the middle, were like 50 pages of Kimberly Crenshaw saying, here's this person this, that got screwed over because we weren't paying enough attention to race. Here's this situation where people got screwed over. Sob story, sob story, sob story, persuasion by pathos. And this is contrasted as better knowledge than what Um, Logos has to offer. That's the essence of the Freyrian education. So, for example, to give you a taste of this without having to read all these strange stories he tells, after the one example he writes, Note once again the simplicity of expression, both profound and elegant, in the peasants' language. These are the people considered absolutely ignorant by the proponents of the nutritionist concept of literacy. Think about that for a second. He's going to do you see where this is going where he's highlighting the concept of these people are actually better knowers they know more their other ways of knowing are better that's where we're going but we're doing it through pathos after another of these little stories he writes he gives an example of a book he says the whole book is like this pleasant in style with great strength of expression of the world of the world of its authors those anonymous people people sowers of words seeking to emerge from the culture of silence how powerful and beautiful of an image. Intellect intu- this is a hard word to say. Intellectualistic. Intu- intellectualistic prejudices. I got it. Intellectualistic prejudices and above all class prejudices are responsible for the naive and unfounded notions. Intellectualistic and above all class prejudices. into intellectual it's prejudices. Class prejudices, in particular, that are responsible for the naive and unfounded notions that the people cannot write their own texts, or that a tape of their conversation is valueless, since their conversations are impoverished of meaning. Comparing what the sowers of words said in the above references, which is uh, with what is generally written by specialist authors of reading lessons, we are convinced that only someone with a very profound lack of taste or a lamentable scientific incompetency would choose the specialists texts over the generative model texts, to be clear. So the only people who would choose to educate people in, say, the formal education process, as opposed to the Marxist program for Aries laying out, are either prejudiced, which is to say immoral or bad, or incompetent, which is to say they're dumb. Sound familiar? Drain your opponent of moral standing, intellectual standing, or psychological standing are the only real tools of Marxist manipulation. So if you choose he's like, look how beautiful these books are, these generative word texts, these Marxist approaches. Look how beautiful. It's so evocative. There's so many feelings. Everything's so beautifully written. They're sewing their words. They're telling their story in their own way. Blah, 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 blah. Only being too intellectual, intellectualistic prejudices, and above all, class prejudices. We're better than those stupid peasants, even if they can read and write now. Only that. Only these moral deficiencies. Or... A complete lack of taste and lamentable scientific incompetency that they're dumb and incompetent could possibly cause you to choose a formal education model over this emotive, pathos-driven Marxist education model. So thus we close our two difficult podcasts on uh, the sixth chapter of Paulo Freire's The Politics of Education, The Adult Literacy Process as a Cultural Action for Freedom. We saw in the previous episode that this process extends from a literal Marxification of education itself, not just a pedagogy, which Freire says follows from having the right orientation, not just toward education, but toward man, and thus toward education as a humanizing process. In other words, what we saw in the first episode is that Freire Marxified education. In this second episode, we see, in fact, that the praxis of a Marxified education, its pedagogy, is actually political grooming, social grooming, into a utopian vision. And so we keep kind of hitting back on George Lukács here, but we we recall from George Lukács' remarks in History and Class Consciousness that his theory literally was based off of what he called, in his own words, describing his own work, looking back at it, messianic utopian aspirations. So the adult literacy process, as a cultural action for freedom, that's the title of the chapter, ultimately refers to a Marxist socio-political grooming, that is, cult programming, remaking education from within, which is Gramscian, enter the situation, shift to create a counter-hegemony to overthrow it from within, and the, the viral model, if you want. This is Freire's project, Within Education. And almost all of your kids go to Paulo Freire's schools to be groomed in this way. And this is why groomer schools keep happening. In our next episodes, we're going to go into chapter 7, which is a doozy. It's long. Its title is Cultural Action and Conscientization, which refers to the marriage of theory and praxis of his Marxified education program, All for the Awakening of Critical Consciousness. It's the longest chapter in the book. It's a difficult chapter. Um... Hopefully, I can summarize it more briefly than I did Chapter Six. But Chapter Six is the key. So let me just quickly tie this up in a pretty bow, and we'll get out of here. Uh, long and short of the Frearian education process is this: Freire's model is to turn education itself into a Marxist program, not to indoctrinate into Marxism. Literally, to make the concept of ed- being educated. Marxist. It is bourgeois property. Thus it creates a superstructure versus infrastructure dialectical relationship. As a result of that relationship, there is a structure created to society between the educated and the uneducated, the literate and the illiterate. And in knowledge itself, as a matter of fact, that which is considered knowledge and that which is excluded from the knowledge uh, of the world, uh, what we consider knowledge, other ways of knowing and versus knowledge. There's a Marxist dialectic between them. And it is the goal of the people who represent that underclass to gain uh, consciousness of what's going on and then overthrow that system. Education is replaced by raising critical consciousness in a full Marxification of literacy. What it means literally to read, as we heard with the codification and decodification process, which is a little bit complicated. And then... uh, Absolute, like I said, full Marxification, but also of knowledge. So what's knowledge versus knowledge versus other ways of knowing and knowledge is, you know, that how we know epistemology versus other ways of knowing. These things are entering into a Marxist dynamic as well. So you have the full marxification of what education actually is. This is what culturally responsive teaching ends up tapping into and being. And then and then, because we're not done, the second half of this chapter indicates that what the really the the adult literacy process as cultural action for freedom is talking about freedom being freedom from reality. Like all Marxists want, is really talking about is retooling the entire education process to be a grooming process, where educators are sorry teachers and students are replaced by educators who are groomers and learners who are learning to see the world in the way that they're being guided to. The process there that is used is simple. We're going to take going to create an abstract image of the conditions of your life, the generative context of your life. We're going to create an abstract image, a codification of it. We're going to problematize that, and then we're going to make it concrete by tying it to the objective conditions you yourself live in. So constant problematization, because he says that the point is to enter into this new proclamation of the world through speaking the word, which is to denounce The existing society and announce the new society, the reimagined society. But he says that this happens, and I know I didn't read that part very clearly and get into it very clearly, so I apologize. I could have done it better, I think. But he says the way that happens is that the annunciation of the better world is present, just like Marcuse says, is present within the denunciation of the existing world. Because by denouncing, you're saying what's wrong with the world. So we could say this is like the Derridian concept of the negative. And by what you're denouncing, you're saying what would be better. You're implying what would be better, actually. And so by denouncing the world, you say what its problems are. Obviously, it's the world without those problems that is better. You don't ever have to describe it. It's just the world without those problems. What would it look like? You don't have to know. It's the world without those problems. So you're constantly announcing a new reimagined world through denunciation. And the goal of education is to groom people into thinking that this is what it means to be educated. And you do that by grooming them into thinking that they should abstract situations, sit aside from them and crap on them. And then by problematizing them, so that the abstract meets the negative, and then the negative can be made concrete by tying it back to the real conditions. And the goal is so that the person that you're grooming, who is allegedly uneducated, maybe it's a child, who is at the therefore the margins of society can be brought to the center of society where power is, where they can see the totality of society all at once as a Marxist believes that they have the unique Gnostic power to do. But in seeing the totality of society, remember that doesn't mean totality of society like you see everything that's going on with society and how it works now. You see the totality of the society throughout history. You know, the conditions that led it, that's the historical part. They always talk about the scientific study of history that they always talk about. You see the conditions as they unfolded to get you to this particular point in history. You see your role in this point of history as oppressed. You see your the purpose of where you're going in history, in the society, which is the perfect communism at the end, and you see your role in creating that. And that's the full class consciousness. And what he's describing is this multi-stage class consciousness program being groomed into it by educators who are as equals, which is straight up going to turn into groomer schools, like the exact groomer schools we see in like real sexual grooming, uh, scandals everywhere. Once you start doing that with blurring the boundary between adult teacher and child student. And so why libs of TikTok? Why is this happening everywhere? Because since 1985, when this book was published, we have had Paulo Freire in education at the heart of every school college of education in North America very quickly by at least the early 90s. This Paulo Freire schools are groomer schools. Groomer schools meant to be socio-political grooming and cultural grooming to become cultural Marxists, when you add in the identity Marxism of sex, gender, and sexuality contained within queer theory, what I also might call gender Marxism or sexual Marxism, when you add that in, is going to create, you're already socio-politically grooming people, which is also the main point of all the sex stuff that they're doing in schools for the most part. You're going to add in sexual grooming as well, because you have no filter to stop the pedos. They just seem like people who are on the same path as you that are helping you out. Which is why I keep sharing the meme on the internet, and I just put Marxists, handshake, groomers. Marxists, handshake, pedos, groomers. That's why. Why does this keep happening? Why has this evolved? Because remember what the critical turn in education, Isaac Gottsman, which is the big structure of this whole giant series of critical education, remember what he said, it proceeded in three stages. The critical turn in education. How did education go from not being Marxist to being Marxist? How did it go from not being critical Marxism to being critical Marxism? Three stages. Marxist critique, he says, post-structural feminism, and there's your queer theory and then critical theories of race, which when you combine them, you end up creating a Maoist dynamic where you beat down some kids about their identity, especially white kids and white adjacents, but we heard that even in this episode, and you make them feel like the worst kind of person, they have the wrong identity, you can tell them they can be allies, they can become politically whatever race they are, unless it's white, in which case they can just be allies, they're never going to quite be good at that, but then look at this whole mess of sexual identities that you can be groomed into through gender and queer theory. And then that's just super positive and great. And so you beat them down about their bad identities and they're groomed into being able to adopt these disruptive sexual identities as a result. And this because Paulo Freire's program, his dialogical model is groomer schools, especially when you break it down with adults and kids. That's why we have Groomer Schools happening. That's why the Groomer Schools podcast series has resonated so well. It's by far the most popular thing I've done on New Discourses. It's by far the thing that people are telling me is opening the most eyes to what's really happening. That's why we have Groomer Schools, because we've adopted the Palo ferrarian model. All your kids go to Paulo-Ferrarian schools. Paulo-Ferrarian schools are Groomer Schools. And when you add in queer theory as an identity Marxist theory, you now have sexual Groomer Schools. Which is what people think you mean, when really it means sexual, but also socio-political and cultural grooming to become cultural Marxists in the Ferrarian mold. That's what's going on in schools. Chapter six of this book. Maybe I didn't do the best job of going through this harder second half of the chapter, but it is actually what's going on. This so Marxification. Chapter six of the politics of education from Paulo Freire tells us. The Marxification of education is the goal, and then you put it into practice by creating Groomer Schools. Thank you for listening. Just wait till you hear what else this wonderful book has to offer. We'll catch you next time.